Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Tinker, Taylor, soldier, spy is over. It's time for a long swim across a cold river. I'm retired. There's a mole right at the top of the circus. He's been there for years. I need you to do something. You have to assume they're watching. If you're caught... What the hell are you doing up here? You can't mention me. He's a fanatic, and the fanatic is always concealing a secret. Hello, Ricky. I needed to see you. Why? There's a woman. I know who you are. She had information concerning a double agent. What she told me was sensational. Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, Andy, we're finally here. We're at the Tink Town. And uh, <laughs> we are. Is that what they call this part of the world? Tink Welcome to Tink Town, Andy. I'm pretty excited to talk about this movie. Do you remember last week when you talked about Drummer Girl? <laughs> and how? <laughs> Aren't you relieved that we made it? It's it's. Uh, yeah. <sighs> I know there were parts of that conversation where we were ready to hang up podcasting altogether. Just we're done. Uh, we've talked about worse movies. It wasn't the worst movie we've discussed on the show. <laughs> Okay, it definitely it has its issues. <laughs> it, it has some issues there. There, it has some issues. But this one is a very different take uh, on uh, the uh, Jean Le Carré, Jean Jean Le Carré uh, adaptation of uh, the uh, original film Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It is the um, it is a the number five in the George Smiley books uh, out of nine in that series as it has been repackaged and rebranded, I guess. I have not read, uh, I think, any of them, I don't think. And this has been a delightful formal introduction to George Smiley. Uh, I was listening to an interview uh, with uh, between um, Mark Strong and uh, uh, our man, Gary Oldman and Oldman says this movie it's it, this this part like it's um scary to get this because it's it's like an actor being called to play Hamlet like there's some intensity there's a lot of baggage to this role uh he, he says there's a dragon in my head about Smiley uh where most dragons live in your head and that dragon's name was Guinness Alec Guinness, who is uh, the played the in the miniseries, he played the role of George Smiley and really defined the part. Uh, so there is a sense of seriousness, a sense of sobriety uh, that they bring to both Smiley and to this film. Um, and I would love to know, Andy, what you thought of it. I I really enjoy this film. I find it to be an incredibly strong. Uh, kind of complex weaving of a tale that has a lot of different layers, a lot of pieces in place. I mean, I think it's apt that some of the characters, the particular ones that Control thinks might be the possible mole, has their picture and name taped to chess pieces. And I found that to be a very apt way of kind of... setting uh this world where you have these different chess pieces that are all moving around and it's not just the five guys that are the, the part of the circus the you know the british secret intelligence that um where they all are the the head people at but you also have all of the other 
pawns and pieces that are in place, like uh, Jim uh, Prideaux, you have uh, Peter Gwillem, Ricky Tarr, and they all have different elements of the story that are kind of working um, together and or against each other and trying to kind of piece it all together really makes this to be kind of uh, I, I, a lot of people consider the book like the ultimate in spy novels the really kind of the peak of that complex uh sort of spy fiction genre that is not sensational like the james bond books still weaves a complex tale of spies trying to puzzle through um the whodunit and everything and I find that it works incredibly effectively. And it's interesting coming into this after having, I've, I saw this first, then I watched the Alec Guinness uh, miniseries, and then I rewatched this. And so finally being able to kind of piece it all together and see um, Guinness as as Smiley, I can definitely see why uh, Oldman feels that way about him. I mean, I think he really commands the role very well, the kind of that quiet strength of a presence of character that Smiley has. He definitely exudes that in that previous version. I didn't see the um, Smiley's People, which was the sequel, but I, with Guinness, but I imagine it's just a lot more of the same. And And I think that he, because of those uh, the roles in those two miniseries, I think, definitely deserves to be kind of recognized as the one who created the real on-screen version of that particular character. Even though, as we discussed in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, there were other versions on screen before. Um, sure. But this one, I, I it's just an incredibly strong film. Really, I find, really well told for a complex story in a pretty tight time frame. And it just, it's just, uh, it's gripping and thrilling with a fantastic uh, cast and wonderful period look. I, I think that's fascinating. When you look at the, when you compare the two adaptations, right, the, the, what is it? I, I don't know. I don't want to spend too much time talking about Drummer Girl, but I feel like there is a um, there is a parallel to be made, and Drummer Girl broke it, uh, which is you know when you look at the adaptations of material that lead to successful you know movie or or television properties. What is it you think that that Tinker Taylor got right in these properties that Drummer Girl got wrong when it came to adapting? Uh, or I should say, the first drummer girl got wrong when it comes to adapting Lacare. We've talked about how hard he is to adapt, the density, the complexity, all of that that goes into his pieces that makes it so challenging. Well, I think that this, I think the first thing, there's a totally different type of story being told between these two films. This one is definitely a spy story. You've got all of these spies and they're trying to figure out, uh, well, Smiley in particular is trying to figure out who the mole is after this mission goes awry. And, uh, and just kind of watching those him puzzle through it, I think is an effective kind of telling of that story. In The Little Drummer Girl, it's less about the spies. It's a pretty straightforward story. And really, it's kind of a character story of a woman who goes undercover, and you follow her in this undercover world as she kind of um, gets into this uh, Palestinian group and and uh, tries to, you know, basically is tracking them for the uh, the other side. 
it's it's not as complex a tale to weave, but I feel like, and this is again just all part of that first element. It's the the type of story is dealing with a lot of complex um, political viewpoints, and I don't think that the the people telling that adaptation had the strength in their storytelling skills and their directing skills to weave a tale that gave the different viewpoints the the what they needed in order for that story to make sense. And so it's a different type of story. And I think that's the first issue that I found with that particular story. And then the second I, I already alluded to is just the fact that I don't think that they really had the right team behind Little Drummer Girl. I think Park Chan-wook, when he came in, really had a much better handle on it. And yes, he had more time to tell his version of the story, but it just, it's incredibly effective. Whereas in, in, um, the, the, the film that, uh, George Roy Hill did, I just don't think George Roy Hill was the type of director who knew how to handle a complex story like that with the, the way that the characters needed to be portrayed. I just don't think he was the right man for the job. And on the flip side, with this particular film, I think you had writers and a producer who were behind this from early on who um, kind of knew how to adapt this complex story, but in in a condensed way. And then Thomas Alfredson as the director, I think he was exceptional with the way that he put it together. So I think it just all boils down to the type of the story and the teams. We've already lashed out on on Drum Girl in, in a number of different ways, and I have yet to watch the the miniseries, um, the Park Chan-wook miniseries, but I'm excited to do so now. Uh, I'm even more excited to read these books because I feel like this is a movie that actually invites you and encourages you to read the book even more if you enjoy the movie, right? I mean, sure. I, I, I feel like they were able to pack in an incredibly dense number of characters, uh, a, a dense story that is sort of unspoken spools over this two hours and seven minutes that in spite of its silence still has a, a an incredibly um kind of serious energy to it right something that just it it propels you through just watching people walk around with briefcases and uh, you know yet it, it just propels you scene after scene uh, i didn't find myself getting bored with it i i, I at, at at all i mean i if anything i mean i just um uh, the the second i started watching it uh, again late at night and i, I didn't want to pull a full andy and so as soon as I felt like I was tired, I, I'm turning it off because I want to protect my space with this movie. I want to protect my attention because I find it so, um, so just sort of gripping. Um, and we, we come at it in an interesting place, right? I mean, this is a, or an interesting time. This is not um, in, in these gentlemen's lives. This is not really the heyday of their spy career in terms of, you know, control and uh, and Smiley. This is at the very end, right? They're bringing, essentially bringing in this man from the outside, Smiley, who's been retired, uh, bringing him back to do this job is, you know, bringing back the elder statesman, right? It's, it's Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones 6. <laughs> Probably not an apt comparison. Wow. Way to sell it. (laughs) (laughs) But you got to get a sense of where this could have gone so wrong. This is not, this is, uh, um, I I think so much of this is built on the performance of of, um, 
you know, of uh, Oldman as Smiley and just what what he is able to do on screen with everybody with so little. I mean, the nuance of his performance is just stunning. Uh, and, and yet he is in so much control. Although he's not control. <laughs> Although he's not control. He's only in control. And I don't mean John Hurt. <laughs> Uh, Gary Oldman is just so mesmerizing in this film. He's so quiet and so controlled in his in every element of his performance. The, the moment that really stuck with me this go around was the moment when they were visiting with the one of the new guys that they were bringing on to be an addition to his team. It's uh, he's with Peter Gwillem and they go to the guy who's keeping the bees. I can't remember who this guy is. And you see him kind of checking his bees. And then the three of them are now in the car and there's a loose bee. And the driver kind of uh, bats him away. Peter Gwillem kind of bats him away. And then it flies over to Smiley, who his reaction is to just slowly roll the window down, let the bee out and then slowly roll the window back up. It was just so calm and quiet. And I'm like, wow, that just exudes everything as to who this guy is, right? He just doesn't let anything bother him. He analyzes it. He uh, attacks it in the right ways and gets the job done. It was incredibly smart. And I can't help but feel every time I watch this film, how Gary Oldman doesn't even sound like himself. It's like he just takes on this entirely different persona. Yeah. It's just, it's really a genius performance. I, I find it incredibly aspirational, right? I personally, it used I used to want to be the superheroes, right? When I'd watch movies or Han Solo or Indiana Jones, right? I'd watch a movie, I'd be like, deep in the back of my mind, I could still pull that off. Not anymore. Now I want to be the guy who can say so much with so little. Yeah. Uh, this the scene you are you mentioned the bees, I think is is a perfect example. The one for me is um, when uh, Tom Hardy, Ricky Tarr, comes in and uh, or he's sitting on the couch. And uh, Gwillem, uh, played, I think, brilliantly by Benedict Cumberbatch, comes in and just starts pounding on him in the living room. And there is no sense of shock. Oldman, you know, as, as Oldman Smiley just sits there and all he does is this tiny nod to their third beekeeping compatriot, right? It's just he nods to him and goes over and and separates the fight. But at no point does Oldman, does Smiley react to get involved at no point does he seem engaged in the fact that there is so much physical violence going on in the room that his friend ricky tar has been hurt and is nursing a wound like at no point does any of that happen he is just so very in control of himself and uh, i now at this point in my life i find that's the character that I'm aspiring to. I no longer need to fly. I don't need to be invisible. I don't need any sort of, uh, I don't need a leather jacket. I just need composure. I aspire <laughs> to composure <laughs> and how things change. Of course, if you could fly, then that wouldn't be a problem either. But I mean, I would so, love to fly sure. and have composure. So what are we, <laughs> come on, no, are we kidding? Uh, interesting uh, use of eyewear. Don't you think? I, I definitely like the that fantastic 70s pair of specs that he's got. And it's uh, as much of a character as he is, I think. Well, it is. And I, I particularly love the, the way they use his glasses as a tool. Early on in the film, he goes and gets new glasses. 
And this becomes a, a tool in the film that allows us to key in on when we are in flashbacks and when we are in the main narrative of the film. And I thought that was so elegant. I, I didn't quite see it coming. It took it took me a while to notice it because when we keep flashing back and forth to that Christmas party, right? I mean, some of the scenes take place out in the hallway. Some of the scenes take place kind of in a yard. And uh, it, it, I, I think this is one of those little anchor pieces that allows us through the, the character design, the production design, to remind us that, oh, he's got the, the different shaped glasses. The, it, this must be some time ago now. We're, we're in a different time period. That plus his little nods, it, like it, the, the way Goldman uses his head. Oldman, G. Oldman, we call him Goldman. <laughs> Goldman. Uh, the way he uses his head uh, to kind of look at the past. I don't know if you noticed this, but I found it, it, it really touching. Whenever he's having a memory, he looks like over his shoulder. He'll look in a different direction mm-hmm. as if he's looking at history in his own sort of mind's eye. And I found that that um, uh, a really touching sort of performative tool. Well, that's an interesting thing to bring up because uh, I had written a note there's a point in the film when control dies and that's done in a very similar way to what you just described. It's not necessarily the past, but it is some other element within his life that he's paying attention to. He's walking down mm-hmm. the street and you hear the sound of something break uh, and the, and he turns and he like looks across the street, but kind of continues walking. And then it cuts to a hospital room where you see control in his hospital bed and he has died and in the process he had knocked off like a plate that he had had on his lap and you see it shattered on the floor that's the sound of the thing that had broken it obviously wasn't what smiley had been looking at from the street but it's a very interesting and effective way for alfredson to craft this story where he's blending scenes together in such a way where we're moving through very effectively getting all these different uh, pieces and in, in this information into the audience's head so that they understand everything going on, but allows for that condensing to happen. It's very smart. Was there was there any sort of malfeasance to the death of control that I missed? No, he just died. He just died. Yeah. Okay. Part of it is, I, it was, I think, you know, hard. he's just, I, and I think, I can't remember if it was in the I feel like if you're not remembering, then obviously it must have been in the miniseries. I feel like there actually was a line in there about them asking or somebody asking if anything had happened to him and uh, asking Smiley about that. And I think Smiley just says, nope, he just happened to die of old age sort of thing. And, um, you know, I, I must have missed it if it was in there. I, I, I think it I must have been it. in the miniseries. I, I feel like there's there's a scene, a pretty lengthy scene in the beginning when a character from Smiley's past connects with him in the street and and kind of drags him into a bar to have a drink with him. And he's just a, a I mean, I want to call him a Liberty gibbet. He's just one of these talking guys who just won't stop asking questions and having this lengthy conversation all night long with Smiley in this bar. And it was a great way to get a lot of exposition about all this stuff that's been going on with Smiley and with the circus since he and Control had been ousted. We don't get a lot of Flipperty Gibbet characters in this movie. It is uh, a stoic sort of film in the hands of Alfredson. Uh, How'd you feel about the pace? I think it's really effective. I, I think 
it's one of those films that you definitely need to be paying attention to from the beginning. You can't, it's it's a hard one to get up and walk out and go to the bathroom and come back and feel like you can catch up pretty quickly. Like, I don't know how, yeah, yeah. I don't know how well that would work. Because, well, it's remarkable because it feels like, it feels like it moves kind of slowly early on. And so I wouldn't be missing much if I got up and went to the bathroom. And yet you miss a lot if you turn oh, your head. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in the in miniseries, the entire first episode is really the story of Jim Prido as he goes to Hungary to figure out, you know, to try getting a hold of this person who might have information as to who the spy is or the mole. And that's the entire first episode. And you're watching um, him as he gets shot in the back and everything. This film takes that entire story and gets it done in, in less than seven minutes. And so, but I felt like, you know, I didn't need all of that setup. It's really interesting. There's a lot of additional interesting elements that happen in the longer version, but in the context of of telling a film, telling the, blah, 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 blah. but in the context of telling the story in a film that is only two hours and seven minutes long, I think that they found the right places to squeeze to condense. We didn't necessarily need all of that of Jim's journey to to Hungary to deal with that uh, defection. It just was enough of a setup to allow us to get a sense as to what's kicking the story off and then to later give us a sense as to why he's now kind of teaching and what is going on with his world at that point. I, I don't think Oldman has a, a, a set of two sentences together until an hour and 12 minutes into the movie. When he's he's sitting down and having that conversation about Carla, and it's right in the middle of the movie. I think he is uh, a tr- written as a true stoic in this in the film. Yeah, he first speaks yeah. about eighteen minutes in, but it's just the one line where he says, yeah. "I'm retired, Oliver. You fired me." Yeah, and yeah. there's not much after that. It's written in a very kind of stoic way, like you said. Yeah. And I find as the story progresses and you get more and more of him, it just becomes really fascinating to listen to him kind of lay the pieces out that he's solved and and, and put things on the table. I want to read this this brief passage from an interview with Thomas Alfredson on on his perspective on silence and and working on this film and in particular with the right one in from 2008. Um uh, he is from Sweden, and uh, and so he's you know working on these films as a as a foreign language director, right? He's working on this as a foreign language film. So he says, working on a foreign language film forced me to find different expressions besides the lingual. We tried to do that with Let the Right One In as well to do it as a silent movie where the dialogue adds just a poetic layer to the story. You could actually turn off the sound on Let the Right One In and understand what happens. It wouldn't be possible with this film, but I try to create as much silence as possible. Too many films, at least for me. I know what's going to happen in every scene. It's so boring to watch things where everything is clarified. The most interesting thing is to create a dialogue. I give you 10 suggestions for this scene. Work it out for yourself. Hmm. I I find that an, uh, uh, it, it's really 
refreshing to read the director's sort of ideological or cinematic worldview and then be able to see that he really does pull through right he that i hear his intention and i can see it on screen uh, i feel from the very opening sequence you're talking about jim preto going to hungary I get a sense of me just sort of puzzling through. What could this be? What could be going on here? What am I waiting for to happen next? My goodness, why isn't he running? Why isn't he running when all those waiters and restaurant people are standing up and pointing guns at him? Uh, at, why are they still shooting? You know, I I hear with just a few words that he allows kind of on uh, in the film, and and I have filled in a lot of blanks, and I find that an incredibly engaging experience. And I think that's one of the tools that he is able to use so adeptly to keep Keep us engaged even when there isn't a lot going on in that first hour, when it feels like it's just a lot of detail and passing hands and watching people kind of relate to one another. Um, in that way, it you know, it, it, he forces me to be engaged by sort of writing the emotional script in my head for the film as I watch it. And I think that that does say a lot about kind of the pacing and the structure and just how things unfold. It's smartly put together. And I think by allowing for that, it creates this atmosphere that where Smiley doesn't have to talk for a lot of the film as things kind of unfold and he's uh, the observer. And it allows for him to build a crescendo of his character as he starts talking more and more. And then you get toward everything in the end and you really kind of see all his um, the puzzle pieces clicking in his head. One of my favorite scenes is when he's uh, talking to, I'm going to forget which one it was. Um, was it Bland? Uh, I can't remember uh, which one it was, but he, no, it's Esther, ha- Esther House. He's talking was to Esther the, House. Uh, on the uh, airfield? On the airfield. Yeah. And the uh, the planes coming down. It's just that incredibly long lens shot. And it's just, it it creates like so much tension. And you just have a scene with Smiley talking to Esther House in that moment and just it just works brilliantly well and that you end up he ends up turning esther house and that he is just that that esther house ends up just begging please don't send me back there please don't send me to leave i am loyal i am loyal that is uh ends up being one of the more powerful sequences in the movie because you feel like that plane that looming threat he really does let it loom by using that incredibly long lens and watching it just come into focus so close to them you know i'm i'm left thinking i know this isn't the kind of movie where uh, this guy smiley is going to you know assassinate by by propeller, but it kind of feels like he could. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I found that incredibly powerful. I, I had this thought that this would be an, an interesting film to talk about with regards to the Cold War and the and to look at the filmmaker and what he is most interested in, in, in why he would he would kind of jump on board to this story and adapting it. And, and you know, what is it about this film that, it, you know, to me, I'm watching it and it's so resonant, resonant to today, right? What is it that makes Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy stand up to history that allows us to see kind of its importance? And I'm, I'm thinking about all those things and I'm thinking, gosh, I'll bet Andy has a really strong opinion on that too. And then I read this, the first line of this interview with, with Alfredson and it says, how is this film about the Cold War relevant today? And his response, I'm not really interested or educated in the Cold War, nor vampirism (laughs) (laughs) okay oh oh, well uh (laughs) you know 
I, I, I will finish that passage because he does go on to clarify his his point. But I'm curious how the how the Cold War hit you uh, as a child of the the uh, 70s and 80s yourself. He he continues. For me, it's trying to find stories that are suitable for film and that make you shiver. Uh, for me, this was a story about faith, to be faithful, and a nuanced look at friendship and fidelity. So the Cold War thing, it's an interesting era and a period and a good backdrop for a story because it's very black and white, but everything in front of it is kaleidoscopic. It's funny because when you say that, I feel like when I look at this film, I don't watch it as a Cold War film. Like, I watch it as a spy film. I watch it as kind of a a, a character story. But largely, it's this puzzle that I'm I'm watching Smiley put together over the course of the two hours, and I don't think of it as a Cold War film, even though uh, it obviously is. But I, I feel like there's a lot less of Cold War in this film than there is in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Maybe that's because the bulk of that film has our protagonist dealing very directly with the other elements on the other side of the wall and he's going undercover to be there in this particular film it's really we're we're with the master as he's trying to find these pieces to figure out the puzzle so he knows who the mole is obviously that ties into the cold war but it just doesn't strike me as a cold war film like we're never dealing with the russians we're we're only hearing of carla through a story and I, I, we, I just don't feel like that. That I, I guess I don't come to it with that perspective. So to that end, I kind of agree with him. I feel like there's a lot less of this as just a straight up Cold War film, as there is a spy film, as there is a film dealing with um, relationships and fidelity. I think that ends up um, coming into play a lot more. Do you get a sense that the miniseries was more of a Cold War story? Or was it just not even? Is it not even the story that you're you're saying is? No, I, I. It's more than this. I mean, we see Carla. By the way, Carla in that is played by Patrick Stewart. So I will forever now picture Patrick Stewart as go. Carla. Even in there, I mean, there's more stuff that you're seeing on the other side. But like, there's a little more with Irina, and uh, so I, I feel like there is Cold War stuff. But I feel like. It's just you're dealing with so much this mole side of things that I feel like it doesn't feel as much Cold War, even though it obviously is, even for the miniseries. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing for me in this movie that I feel like, and I, I'm with you, I should say, um, as a an aside, that I I I don't see it as 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 much of a Cold War film, certainly as other films of the era that are kind of celebrating the the sort of Cold War period. But I do think that there is an interesting um transition of power that is going on in that gold soundproof room right in the vault controls vault which is the transition from uh an uh, mi6 or the circus being a an intelligence operation to a political operation and in many respects what we get in this movie is the push pull between those ideologies right that that we can use this as a not just as a way to protect king and country but a, as a way to manipulate others and as a way to manipulate our own and as a, a way to consolidate power and i think that's what control is trying to keep from happening uh and you know when we get these 
guys in the room and see how easy this political machine can be manipulated by the Russians, uh, what we get in this film is actually Smiley rescuing the the heart of the circus, right? By the end of the film, Smiley takes the, the captain's chair, so to speak, and and he is seen as sort of the last breath to me of, of what I now know was the intelligence operation and now has become a straight-up clown show in modern intelligence gathering. <laughs> like, it's just, we know how this ends, uh, or we know where it goes, at least, and it's, it's not great. Um, and so I really like that this film sort of in that office celebrates those two sort of competing directions. And I'm, I'm, it makes me all that much more curious about what he does in the book. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I didn't know this, but, uh, the CIA, our own central intelligence agency, they actually do reviews of, of properties that, uh, deal with intelligence in, um, literature and arts yeah, and stuff like yeah. that. And I was looking at their review of this particular uh, film, and it's interesting to see how they kind of look at it and break it down and and the portrayals and accuracy and all that. And their focus is, does the film realistically portray the British Secret Intelligence Service or any other major Western intelligence agency? Is the movie... Uh, likely to alter or reinforce popular perceptions of intelligence in general and the CIA in particular. Um, and, and then of course they're doing comparisons between the novel and the miniseries and the movie. Uh, it's interesting to kind of look at their take on all of this. And, and in the end, they really feel like this, this particular film, it's unlikely to change public perceptions um, because there are still a lot of, uh, things that fit in context of movies and storytelling that still, according to them, don't make sense, uh, aren't how things are. And it's funny because their perspective is largely um, that, you know what, there's still so much red tape and there's still, you know, all of these top level people aren't going to be the ones going out in the field. They're going to be the ones who are delegating it to underlings and all of this paperwork and all of these sorts of things that you have to do, it doesn't allow for this lone investigator to be trying to solve the crime and stuff like that. And so I think it's funny because it seems like it's gone even farther from what you were just describing of kind of from intelligence to political. And it's now just like so bureaucratic. <laughs> that I yeah. think that it's just now that's how the processing is. Wow. Gross. <laughs> so gross. Uh, but but it does make for an interesting film. And to that point, the thing that stands out to me is that it, this is a film with a lot of people. And yet it still makes, you know, it, it still makes such, I think, effective use of him as this lone wolf. I do believe it in spite of what the CIA says. <laughs> I do believe that there is a, there would have been an opportunity in that period for him to just, you know, play the goof on MI6 and be able to get away with, you know, the duty log and sneak it out in, uh, you know, in some a stack of newspapers and a briefcase. And like those things, I found those incredibly believable, uh, you know, so. Well, and also, I mean, they call him, uh, you know, kind of his lone wolf escapades and stuff. But I yeah. mean, he really isn't. I mean, he's working with Gwilym and the other guy. He's got his little Mission Impossible team. He's working directly with the the 
people kind of above, I guess you could say, the circus with Lakin and with the uh, the minister. And so he's kind of, you know, there are a lot of people who are aware of what's going on. He's just right. kind of the guy that they shove into it to make do all the work. There's a point in the second hour where the movie becomes just a, uh, I, I had to pause it and sort of because people were talking behind me and I, I had to pause it and I had to say, shut up. Do you realize what just happened here? Like this movie went from telling us a part of history to telling us about our present right now. And it is the conversation, I think it was between uh, Smiley and, and um, Gwillem, or not, it was Smiley and the, the chief uh, in the parking garage, the meeting that never happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they start talking about how Smiley lays out that this wasn't even about the Russians getting information on the Brits. It was about the Russians using the dumb-witted Brits as a way to get an inroads with the Americans. And I, my heart sunk so deep in my <laughs> chest uh, that I had to stop and take a breath. Do you, do, do you get a, a sense of the weight of that moment? Did, was it used effectively here? Or was it too heavy-handed? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's, I don't know. Maybe maybe all the Spike Lee has just affected me. No, this is nothing. <laughs> there is no heavy-handed anymore. Spike Lee has ruined it for everybody. He owns that. <laughs> no, you know, um, I didn't feel it was. Um, if anything, I felt the film handled that pretty effectively in the way that it kind of laid all of that out. Um, and, you know, it's one of those films where it, it's so expository and there's so much uh, just back and forth as to the perception of things that it can be something that you really have to be paying attention to quite a bit to really get everything going on in the film in this shortened version for sure. And mm -hmm. so I think it helps just having stuff like that, like when he says it, because it fits the exposition. It obviously fits and makes sense with w the way that he's laying it out to the minister and the fact that it's all the minister's fault anyway, because he's started right. this whole thing. And um, yeah, I think having that in there is just, it's just, I don't know, it just, it didn't, Sometimes we just need you to say direct. it out loud. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Just exactly. tell me, tell me what I need to know. <laughs> yes. Yes. I thought All it was right. fine. But I, I, you know, to that point, I do have a question for you. All right. Regarding the end of the film, when we have our climactic moment, how does it work for you when you have the buildup to who is the person who is the mole that's going to show up in this flat after their secret meeting? And we have Smiley as he's kind of waiting and observing, and then he kind of pulls his gun, he hears the footsteps and everything, and he gets ready to kind of go into the other room. Takes his shoes off. He takes his shoes off. And then we cut to Gwillem, um, Benedict Cumberbatch, outside as he gets himself ready, and he runs in, and he goes into the room, and he sees um, the guy sitting there. He sees Smiley sitting there with the gun, and he turns and he looks, and it's, it's um, uh, Bill. Does that reveal of the of our big bad? Does it work where it shifts perspective right in the middle of the climactic, uh, you know, chase for you? I guess we would call yeah, it. I I knew actually that you were going to bring this up, and I knew it when I watched it uh, because <laughs> I, I thought obvious? this. This is going to be a thing that that Andy's going to think about. I don't know which way he's going to fall, uh, but I know that this movie. Um, 
if if this movie, I say to myself, if this movie is a movie with which Andy has quibbles, this is going to be a quibble. <laughs> I for me, it actually works very well. I find it incredibly powerful, and I I think it's it's jarring enough, right? Because it allows us a physical reveal, right? It's not just the camera, you know cuts to bill it's it allows us to come down the stairs and kind of see as he as as willem is coming up into the room and it allows the wall to kind of move out of the way and then we get to see bill sitting there in that chair and he's kind of forlorn and and smiley still has his gun on him and i think that is a it ends up sort of to me i think the the secret sauce here is in just how jarring it is for me to move from upstairs to downstairs it is a broken sort of rule that i think works very effectively here does it hold up the end for you i don't know Uh, it's like i'm kind of torn on it because I, i i think it works but at the same time i can't help but question the reason and i i can't i haven't i guess for me it's just i haven't landed on in my head a reason that alfredson would have gone this route instead of the other route um you know cuz I, I, normally you would be with your hero as he kind of has that final moment with the protagonist or the antagonist mm-hmm. and catches him and and you'd see him sneak down the stairs and and uh, pull the gun on uh on bill with the russian that he's meeting in this room and you'd have all of that you'd see the reaction on bill's face and everything you don't get the reaction on bill's face he's already been caught and so when gwillem comes in it's really the reaction on on gwillem's face face. as you know and because it's it's just one of those weird things because it's honestly like it could have been any of them this is not a red herring sort of film like an agatha christie where you can work backward and puzzle piece it where okay it could be this person or it could be this person like it just it's a it's it i don't know i guess i don't feel like it's there's not clues that have been left behind where on multiple watches you can go oh i can see why that's where bill did this and left that you know it it doesn't work that way it's just so it maybe it's he's doing it because it's not a reveal that came from uh, any big surprises i don't know i i guess i struggle with the fact that he did it and i don't understand why more than anything else well and when you <laughs> so say it's, he it's here fault. you're talking no. about alfredson i'm or, talking about uh, alfredson right. yeah why yeah. did alfredson decide to construct it this way and i, I you, you brought up a valid point that i liked the fact that maybe it was to build some more tension in because now we're kind of coming in in a much more aggressive attack with gwillem i don't know well, an aggressive attack, but also an incredibly subdued reveal, which I think, to me, fits the tone of the film uh, more accurately than a surprise kind of jump scare attack or, you know, gotcha moment, right? This movie, none of this movie is about a gotcha. There is nowhere in the DNA of this movie that indicates we're going to get a gotcha. That it's all about sort of the complexity of multiple vectors of approach to a nefarious element. And I feel like the end, the way he just sort of stifles the instinct for the gotcha moment, uh, is it, it 
it absolutely fits the tone and tenor of the film and the uh, and, and I don't think it takes away in in my to my eye it takes away of any of the satisfaction of the fact that we caught um, and and have identified the central mole but more important than that right it allows us to get to what I think is the the uh, the real celebration of victory of this movie, which is, you know, seeing what happens to Bill after he's caught, right? As he is imprisoned and as Smiley confronts him or actually just visits him in his in his uh, uh, cell. And finally, um, you know, the the confrontation, I should say, the not even the confrontation, right? The final sniper shot. Uh, when we get to to see um, Jim Preto come back from the woods and and take care of uh, this last little bit of business after he boots the boy out. Well, jerk. let's I mean, let, OK, first <laughs> of all, he has some real questionable behavior when he comes back from from hiding. What business does he have teaching that kid to drive at that age? He's not of driving age, even if he's in a soccer field. There were too many children around there. You know, you are you should question your teacher when the first thing a new teacher does in the classroom is kill a bird. <laughs> <laughs> you should. Yeah, you should do that. Is this somebody I should look up to? No, he's not great. He's not great. No, it's, I mean, all of that is, I think it's, it's, it makes sense. I, I feel like in the, um, in the mini series, I'm trying to remember, I felt like Bill was a little, less i don't want to say he's apologetic here but he seems a little like once he's caught and everything it's like he's feeling like yeah i know i just kind of did it and like he he he's not um completely uh apologetic but he's he's a little more like you know i i yeah it wasn't i i guess he feels like you know, it, he made some choices and he's acknowledging maybe they weren't right. And then he gets killed by by his friend. In the original one, I felt like he was pretty aggressively changed. Like, he's like, yeah, I made a choice. Communism was better. And that's the side I'm on. And you're wrong. And mm-hmm. I felt like it was a, a little har- harder edged. Um I don't know. I'm a little, uh, I guess, I guess it still works fine. I guess I don't have an issue with the way that, uh, it's played here with Colin Firth and everything. Which part? The way at the very end, like here. at the end when he's like, oh, did the, you feel just he's like Firth real is apologetic? A little bit, and, yeah. 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 Like, like you feel like, and I, I can see that, that you feel like he is, and I don't mean the, the royal you, that, that you start to feel like, okay, he was taught a lesson. And that yeah. becomes the vindication of the film. And that's not what I want. And that's not what I walked away with personally. Uh, what I want is here's a guy who believed strongly that he was doing the right thing for his own sort of worldview. And he got caught doing it in the context of others' worldviews that disagreed with that. And he will be punished for it. And that punishment is, uh, you know, what his, his uh, you know, colleague is going to 
take him out before he's discovered by the Russians. And, the, you know, I, I understood also that there's some undertone uh, around the fact that that perhaps they were gay, uh, right, which is right. and, and that he was actually, you know, doing his former lover a favor. Um, and also that sniper shot was exceptionally well <laughs> executed. <laughs> that was amazing. It was fantastic. The shot right into the cheek. And then the next time we see him, you see him. It's uh, this horrifying. He's down on his in his face and his, you see his, the, what has happened to the back of his head. And I thought it was an incredibly powerful emotional moment, moment in the film. It, and in a movie that has so muffled the, the emotional intensity, I thought that was a, a truly powerful moment in the film. Yeah, no, it's really strong. And also different from the miniseries. And again, I can't speak for the book, but I mean, in the miniseries, you know, he just gets shot. You don't have that moment where they're looking at each other, where mm -hmm. Bill looks up and he happens to catch Jim off in the woods and kind of looks at him like he knows what's about to happen and acknowledges it and doesn't try getting away. He just stands there. Mm -hmm. Which I guess works for me. I, I guess I don't have any issues with that. It's just an interesting way to play that scene where he sees him, acknowledges it, and stands strong. Really powerful. Stands, stands strong, opposite Mark Strong. Mm. Yeah. Uh, 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 it's uh, terrible. Yeah. Um, I, we kind of skipped over this, but I wanted to just, the, as far as the development of this project. Yeah. So Peter Morgan had actually started working on this, on a screenplay back in the aughts. I believe, and uh, was uh, he was hoping to? I, I I guess he must have had a deal with Lacari at that point. Offered it to Working Title Films to produce it, but then he had personal reasons. Ended up dropping out of the project. I don't know what that was. Still was on it as an executive producer, and then that's when Working Title hired Peter Strawn and Bridget O'Connor to work on the script. And uh, what a great job they did. I don't know much about the two of them, but they've done stuff that I'm familiar with, like uh, The Debt, which I really enjoyed, The Men Who Stare at Goats, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, Frank, um, The Snowman, The Goldfinch. So they're, they're behind some interesting stuff, some stuff that may not be as strong. Um, I don't know. I find it very intriguing. Uh, and that's that's actually more of um, yeah, Peter, Strong. Peter Strong. Yeah, Bridget O'Connor's a much uh, less stuff, but um, but did. when you look at at Strong, and he ended up writing, he, he wrote The Snowman, which was in uh, then uh, another film that Alfredson uh, made. It looks like he's uh, a, a partner in filmmaking. Yeah, and I mean Bridget O'Connor. I mean she died before the film was even released you know she Sad. uh yeah she was had breast cancer um and um ended up she died in september 2010 so i don't know she had worked with uh peter strawn on 66 and mrs ratcliffe's Re Re revolution um but then that was it and then she died so it was very very kind of tragic that is tragic. um anyway so they were working on the script and then this is interesting park chen wook actually started considering directing this he ended up turning it down and uh which i mean we already brought it up he ended up jumping back into the lacary world with his miniseries adaptation of little drummer girl which is pretty great and then uh, alfredson came on and off they went 
I don't recall. Yeah, Peter Strawn also wrote Frank. I don't recall your opinion of Frank. I enjoyed it. I didn't love it. I thought it was yeah, uh, no, enjoyable. That was it. Nope. Nope. Stop. No, nah, I don't need it here anymore. That's just gonna disappoint me. <laughs> I didn't say <laughs> meh. <laughs> meh. Okay. Noted. Uh, all right. Uh Hoyt van Hotema is behind uh. the camera. Oh, can we do one more story thing that I want to yeah. ask you about before we sure. jump into crew? See what I got. The miniseries and the book go into the whole thing about the children's rhyme, where the title comes from. Sure. And I don't recall, I know that Control gives everybody their nicknames, but does he ever go through the whole thing? As yeah. And okay, because I was like, it's interesting that it's not in here. And he's just giving these code names without any reference. And us Americans who have no idea what this English children's rhyme is really have no clue what where he's pulling it from. But it's Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Sailor, Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief. That's the little uh, rhyme. And and in the uh, we we do hear him say we'll leave out Sailor since it rhymes with Taylor. We'll skip yeah. Rich Man because it doesn't really fit any of these people. Right. Um, and so it's it's interesting that they leave that in, but they don't really give us the the actual rhyme. I, I don't know. I, yeah, I wonder how much of that. that we just need to know because this is a movie that is so celebrating kind of classic British spy moviedom, and and I I feel like this is an in house. It's an it's a not it's it's kind of an in house cultural joke that yeah right that we don't get yeah, it, to we just it, don't get to know you don't need it you don't nope. need it but no nope. but I do I, like hearing the whole thing well I, I if if people listen to the end of our shows anymore and I have I think it's highly dubious that anybody does uh, <laughs> but last I think it was last week's uh, Amazon review you actually read one that talked about this movie as soldier tinker tailor spy that's right if you i don't know if you remember <laughs> randy uh your fellow uh, uh randy came and spoke to us and uh i thought this was really interesting because i too looked up a little bit of the background on on the rhyme and it turns out that uh, the similar rhyme to the original was uh, found in the game and play of the chess circa 1475 in which pawns are la- are named laborer smith clerk merchant physician taverner guard and ribald uh and the first record of the opening four professions being grouped together is in William Congreve's Love for Love, which has the lines, a soldier and a sailor and a tinker and a tailor had once a doubtful strife, sir. I think, I I I wonder if, 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 that would have been better. No, you're right. (laughs) I take it all back. There was a bar. (laughs) Anyway, uh, soldier, tinker, tailor, soldier, super spy. There we go. Hoyt van Hoytema. We like him. We talked about him, didn't we, with... uh... Dunkirk? Did we talk about him? Well, because he had, because he's just a guy that likes to carry heavy, heavy things on his shoulders. That is what yeah. I remember more than anything else. Like I mean, it's really he, Interstellar, Spectre, Dunkirk, all of yeah. this stuff. He's very. He's yeah. an oaf of a man. He's a Hagrid. He's Hagrid. He's a giant, <laughs> and he car- Like if there is a an IMAX camera, he will have it on his head. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we know, uh, and and yes, uh, we've the, he's behind Dunkirk and Interstellar, and don't forget Sad Dad Astra. 
as our friend Tommy mm. likes to call it, uh, and let the right one in. Yeah, right, right. He's, uh, he and, is Swedish slash Dutch. Yep. So yes, uh, so he uh, has been around with uh, Alfredson for a while. A while, yeah, and uh, I, I think he did a terrific job. I really do. I think it's, it's a, just a very different kind of film, and and I think he's he is he proves here that he can shoot, uh, he can make these more stoic kind of images just as interesting and compelling on screen as as the as Dunkirk. Well, that's the thing that really struck me is how patient the camera work was, just like Smiley. It, yeah, it very kind of. It, it reminded me actually. It, it it felt like the camera work, like it felt very much in pair with the spy who came in from the cold with the longer shots and just the, the nice pacing, the way that the camera really lingered. It worked really well in this particular case. Uh, how about Alberto Iglesias behind the score? Ah, uh, good old Alberto. Uh, what a score. Just, just beautiful, bluesy. And again, gosh, just exactly what I just said with uh, Van, uh, Van Hoytema's cinematography fitting feeling very much a part of spy who came in from the cold man does this score do the same thing it just feels so beautifully bluesy and just kind of this just kind of this sad jazz feel to the whole thing it just it just fits so nicely right in line with the whole thing no, it really does. And if you go back to the other scores that we've already talked about, I think that that just did so well, especially Spy that came in from the cold. I think that it just really creates that spirit of celebration of the the genre by the way they he, he just sort of uses the same kind of um, instrumentals, the same strings, the same horns in in just a new and really inventive way for this movie. I think it's a great it's a really easy score to listen to. He uh, is a so. fantastic composer. I mean, the music that he just did this year for Pain and Glory, another, I mean, he's done a lot of uh, Almodovar mm-hmm. films, and but just listening to the music there, just really, that's a great score. I really enjoy right. that one. Well, we so. can go back, Constant Gardner, Kite Runner. Yeah, right. Uh, incredible Gardner, scores. Right, right. Yeah. Just incredible scores. Yeah. Um, uh, what do you know about sequels and remakes? Are we going to get, the, are we ever going to get another uh, miniseries of this? Well, I don't know about another miniseries. We did have that first one, and the um, it's a three-part one. They made the first one, the third one, Smiley's People, with Alec Guinness. Mm-hmm. They have talked about adapting a sequel of the books to this film. They never said if it's going to be um, The Honorable Schoolboy or if it's going to be Smiley's People, but they have been talking about it. And it's been very much a back-and-forth sort of thing. Um, I think right away with the popularity of this, they started talking about it, but it never came to play. Um, Gary Oldman at one point said that the talk had disappeared, and uh, but he still is really interested. I think, you know, once you're smiley, I think you want to keep playing that role because it's an exciting yes. role to play. And then um, a couple years later, he said, you know what, there's a script. I don't know if we're going to shoot, when we're going to shoot. It's that's where we are. So fingers crossed that somebody uh, has the cojones to figure out a way to make it, because I'd love to see more of this world with uh, Oldman as Smiley. Well, I'm pretty excited about it. And uh, having never seen the Guinness stuff, turns out Goldman is my Smiley. See what I did there? Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I love it. How to do at award season. 
Really well. 35 wins, 99 other nominations. At the Oscars, Gary Oldman, this was the year of the artist. Let me just tell you, you're going to hear a lot of that as I go through this. Gary Oldman was nominated for Best Actor, lost to Jean Dujardin for The Artist, which uh, that film also beat Alberto Iglesias for original score. And it lost adapted screenplay to The Descendants. So um, uh. I I really like The Descendants, um, but I, and you know, it's funny, I get why and I know this this was a, a popular in conversations at the time why the artist would win best score because it's a silent film. Yeah, it's the a entire film. thing is score. There's a lot yeah. of music in it. But still, God, the score is just so stinking good. I uh I really struggle with all of those, especially Gary Oldman though. I mean, I really felt at the time that Gary Oldman should have won. And it's I guess it speaks to sometimes how they how they pick because it's no surprise that he ended up winning when he played Winston Churchill. Much bigger role. Right, right. Of course. You know, this was this was one that I had not seen when the Oscars came out. I had not seen it at the time. I didn't see it until later. And so I I had seen the artist, so I was fine with it. Um yeah, I mean, it's. I, yeah. I'm with you now, though. I re- I regret that. This it's is a tough this year, a, though, because Demian Bashir was nominated for a Better Life, a, another yeah. beautifully quiet performance. Yep. George Clooney and The Descendants. I really liked him there, and yep. I. This is the one I think that you would probably go with, Brad Pitt and Moneyball. Yeah, yeah, that's you're right. That's the one I was going to be mad at. Ah, uh, now I'm enraged again. <laughs> oh, it rises up in me. I'm bringing it all back. <laughs> anyway, uh, over at the BAFTAs, uh, you know, this was a, a British story. It won for the uh, the Alexander Corda Award for the Best British Film. It lost the actual Best Film to the Artist, which it also lost um, Best Film Music, uh, Jean Dujardin for the Best Leading Actor, Cinematography, and Costume Design and Director. Um, it did win for Best Adapted Screenplay. And it lost editing to Senna, and it lost production design to Hugo and sound to Hugo. So it it got a couple wins in the BAFTAs. Um, a couple last ones, the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. I just wanted to read this one because, let's see, adapted screenplay, lost to Moneyball and the Descendants. But the EDA Special Mention Award at the Alliance of Women Film Journalists, they gave it the award for movie you wanted to love, but just couldn't. I was like, wow. That's, wow. They're terrible. To give awards for things like that. Wow. What are they, the stinkers? I just don't understand why. And then at the World Soundtrack Awards, at least this was good because Alberto Iglesias did win the Best Original Soundtrack of the Year and the Soundtrack Composer of the Year for this and The Monk and the Skin I Live In. So, so you know, he, he won some for that. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Movie you wanted to love but couldn't. That's going to stick with me what's up alliance of women film journalists right terrible bitter i know uh okay so how to do the box office did it win win big well alfredson's adaptation of this story had a budget of 21 million dollars which seems pretty low for a period piece Uh, spent it well i guess that's about 23.9 million in today's dollars 
The movie was released in the UK September 16th, 2011, then worked its way around the world over the next year. It opened in the States in limited release December 9th, 2011, opposite New Year's Day and The Sitter, as well as the limited releases of Young Adult and We Need to Talk About Kevin. This movie opened in spot 21, though it had the highest per screen average of the weekend. It went wide in the US January 6th, 2012, where it moved up to ninth place for the weekend box office, which it never ended up beating. The movie did end up grossing $24.1 million domestically and $57.3 million internationally for a total adjusted gross of $92.85 million. That leaves this Le Carre adaptation with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $538,000. Well, that's not so bad, Andy. You could and take that it, to the made bank. the money back. Yes, and pay and people they did. for their hard work. And they did, yes. Well, this was a, a real treat, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's another one that just entices me. It excites me to go uh, explore some more Le Carre, Le Carre, Le Carjolica, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and as we wrap up this, another very brief series on uh, his works, Two Wins and a Trash. I definitely have, um, I, I've really enjoyed his stuff because it is the anti-James Bond. It's It's yeah. such a... A thinking man's way of telling these stories. And don't get me wrong, I love James Bond movies too. But there's something about the way these stories unfold that I find really just engrossing. So I, I enjoy it and I definitely look forward to catching more Jean Le Carre as we uh, as I kind of continue. Well, I'm very excited to see what happens when we take this to Flickchart. Definitely. Let's do it. Head over to slickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this very show. You swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart. It will take you to this very movie and you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. It's pretty high on my list, Andy. I'm pretty high. Oh my. Yeah. Well, first up, we have Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy or Chronicle. Tinker Taylor. Boy, I sure like Chronicle. Soldier Tinker Taylor Spy. <laughs> Soldier Tinker Taylor Spy. I'll go with Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Next up, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy or Rocky Balboa. Oh, Tinker Taylor, please. Soldier Taylor Spy Tinker. <laughs> TTSS or STII. <laughs> That'd be Star Trek 2. Star Trek 2. <laughs> <laughs> I I would go uh, Tinker. Star Trek. Really? I would go. Yeah, I would. I'm Star Trek. All right, you can I'm, have it. I'm, you can have it. It's okay. It's okay. I don't even want to fight you, about it. I just wanted. I just wanted out there. Just wanted that, to be on the right, as you always say. Yeah, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy or The Shining. Tinker, hands down. Uh, no qualms. Take it to the mat. Ooh, um, boy, I am really torn on this one. I'll go with you, but boy. with regrets. No, not with regrets. I just feel like any given day I could easily flip that. Yeah. Oh, we didn't even mention John Le Carre was in it. Yes, he was. He, he was a guest party. at the party. Yeah. I'm saying that because the poster that came up on Flickchart, which I didn't even realize, <laughs> it has a poster with John Le Carre. You know, it's it's like the character posters, and you have <laughs> and Smiley it's John and the Gwillem and the 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 uh, the Hayden and all the different characters. Yeah. And there's a John Le Carre. <laughs> I've never seen the author in his own movie poster in the style of everyone else. That's that brilliant. Just bonkers. All right. Anyway, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, or Spirited Away. Oh, my. Uh, Tinker. I'm going to say Soldier Spirited Away. Okay. 
we can we can do this. We'll we'll duel this one. Okay. All right. Here we go. One, one two, three. three. Scissors. Oh, Andy. Spirited away. Well done. Takes it. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy or Kramer versus Kramer. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. I think they should have named it Tinker versus Taylor versus Soldier versus Spy <laughs> versus Kramer versus Kramer. Unrelated. Adjusted loss per finish minute of. <laughs> uh, which one did you go with, Tinker Taylor? Yeah, TTSS. Oh, man, these are so hard right now. I really. I feel like I'm leaning toward Kramer versus Kramer. I'm not a child of divorce, man. I just don't have it. <laughs> is that, is that the, <laughs> the, the point I turned? As soon as my parents got divorced, I knew Kramer versus Kramer was the one for me. <laughs> it's your movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Kramer versus Kramer. All right, I'm, let's do it again. I'm pretty, yeah, let's, let's do it. We'll All battle. Right. Okay, here we go. One, one two, three. three. Rock. 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 Scissors. Oh, Andy, you've been going to school. <laughs> Take your tail, let's all just spy. Oh, double indemnity. Oh, double indemnity for me. Double indemnity. The line must be drawn here. <laughs> Take your tail, let's all just spy. Or the world's end. WTF, Gary. So I introduced my kids to Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz this weekend. Oh. We didn't get to world's end, but it's coming. It's coming. I'm, I'm going to go World's I'm, End. I'm going to say World's End. Yeah. Go, Edgar. Go on. You have it. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy or Misery? Ooh, wow. I'm going with Misery. Really? Yeah. I think I'm Tinker. Okay. Yeah, all right. Here we go. We can do it again. Yeah, let's do it Here again. Here we go. Three. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm counting one, backwards. One. What? <laughs> which way am I two. going? One, two, three. <laughs> three. Scissors. Andy, every time. Look at that. Today was my day. All right, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, ended up in spot 84 on our chart. 84 out of 447, which puts it at a... Oh, that didn't do it. (laughs) Which puts it at an 81%. 81%. Now, I... I know that you have already reviewed this movie on Letterboxd. I have not read your review. I have, I have withheld, but I did happen to notice your star rating on Letterboxd, and I carried that baggage with me in silence, mourning <laughs> in silence this whole last hour that we've been together. You gave it a four star over on Letterboxd, and that leads me to believe that this is not in the top 90% on your flick chart. Is that accurate? Could that possibly be true? You want me to reveal it before you tell me yours, or do you want to? Do you want to... I, I, there's no surprise to mine. It's a 57. It's a five star. It's a 96. percent There's. I have no qualms. I deeply love this movie, and uh, I'm. I have no quibbles. No, at no point did stars fall off. They just. If if I could have taken more star, this is a seven star movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. I. I um, watched this movie, and I was like, oh, that's an easy five-star film. And then I went and looked at my rating, and I was like, four stars? <laughs> and I was really perplexed by my own thinking. I'm like, what What was I... And I, I, I didn't read what I wrote last time. I Actually, I don't think I wrote anything. I don't think I was using um, Letterboxd yet. But I feel like... 
I must have just, um, I don't know. I don't oh, know what no, my reaction Andy. was from. <laughs> please, please allow me. Did, I, was, allow did me. I actually write it? Lots of complexities and intricacies going on in this script. Really pay attention, period. Gary Oldman's performance should have seen him walking home with his first Oscar. Finn. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I love that you actually tell the audience, really pay attention. <laughs> well, you really have to. You know, it's funny because I was watching it this time and my wife just casually came and sat with me after doing some other things. And then she kind of sat down and very shortly after got up and said, I just, I can't do this right now. I gotta go <laughs> I, I have this, it's, it has become this really, it's like unintentionally passive aggressive move now where somebody walks into the room while I'm watching a movie or like, cause our, it's our, where I watch movies, it's like our front door is right there. And I will like, apparently what I am told is that my motions over the last year have gotten really big when my arm reaches up over the arm of the couch to press pause uh, because I'm trying to send a message apparently really passive aggressively that people should shut up because I'm watching a movie (laughs) so (laughs) I'm not I'm uh, kind of apparently mean spirited that was this movie for me just shut up I'm in it I'm so in it it's a strong one it's really strong yeah, um, yeah, and this I say. So, did you give me your? Did you give me your flick chart? Oh no, I didn't. It was um, I. You know, it was funny because everything ranked of that four star. Because I, I looked at my flick chart and I was like, it was an eighty five percent. I'm like, wow, that seems pretty low. I should just try it again, just in case. And I did, and it landed in spot two seventy out of forty three eleven, which puts it at a ninety four percent. So, yeah, oh, it's better. It's, it's a strong better. one. It's a five star and a heart film for me. Good. Five star and a heart for me too. Yay. Yeah. All right. Strong, strong run, except for drummer. Strong start and finish. And now we <laughs> are finished with uh, Le Carre. We are. Andy, where do we go from here? This is going to be uh, a nice shift. We're jumping to director Agnieszka Holland, and we're going to be looking at three of her films. Which you know, it's it's going to be kind of a, a nice exploration of kind of what she's doing, and uh, some of the stories that she's telling. Um, you know, World War II and a couple of them. Uh, we're going to start with 1991's Europa, Europa. Then we're going to do her 2011 film In Darkness, and we're going to be ending with her 2017 film Spoor, which uh, is a little tricky to access, but we're excited to talk about it nonetheless. Yes, we are. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon. Yeah, they do. A lot of people at the bottom of the barrel. We have uh, a little mix back again of some people who complain about the format. Yes, true. We format was trouble yep, for a yep. lot of people. Regions. Mm-hmm. Regions are tough. We all know we are anti-region here. We have kind of a platform. We and don't like yes. regions. Yes. Bring down those walls. Bring down those walls. <laughs> uh, would you like to go first? Sure, I will kick it off. We've got a one star from Pat DeMills, 
who says, slow, boring, <laughs> boring, moves at a glacial pace. Such a waste of fine actors could have easily been pared down to a one-hour movie. If the scenes of people walking slowly, swimming slowly, <laughs> sitting on the couch doing nothing were edited out. If you've people over that you want to either drive from the house or put right to sleep, I'd say this is your movie. <laughs> oh, Randy visited. Yeah, the future car salesman uh, from the future. <laughs> well, uh, young Werner called and he had one he'd like me to he'd like to to share. I'd, I'd love to hear uh, it. He says that uh, he said apparently that this movie was way too slow. I kept falling asleep and finally had to fast forward to see who the mole was. <laughs> oh, Werner. I am so delighted because I know that Werner has no patience. I know that he does. He's always, he always reads the last page of the book first. He always fast forwards because he just has no patience. <laughs> There's no angry penguins. <laughs> angry penguins. Good times. Ah, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.